We are about to wrap up a series through the book of Ephesians. I know for some of us, it seems like it's been a while that we've been going through this. But Ephesians is this fascinating book in which the Apostle Paul spends an enormous amount of time kind of trying to lay out what it means to be a Christ follower. And I think it's a really timely sort of lesson for us as a church family to go through, but also in the cultural context in which we find ourselves today. There's just a lot of, of, of things that are unsettled in the world, and a lot of things that are unsettled in Christianity. As you remember, Paul begins the conversation with the church in Ephesus, and he, he reminds us in the first three chapters of the book of, of Ephesians of God's greatness, of God's power, and of God's love. And he revisits those three, three uh, themes multiple times from different angles. But he, he doesn't want any of us to forget that God is this absolutely great in his potential and his power and his might. His power is absolutely complete, but his love is the thing that kind of shapes his relationship with us. And he's challenging us to be people who are shaped by the love of God. And then around chapter 4, the Apostle Paul makes this shift. He moves from being kind of philosophical and talking about the greatness of God and the power of God and the love of God, and he becomes very practical. And he says, this is what it looks like to walk as children of light. This is what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. And I think if there's ever a concept that we would want to wrestle with, and ever a time that we should wrestle with that context or that concept, today is that time. Last week, we jumped into chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul takes this Christian walk, and he begins to make it very personal. And he says, this is what it looks like to be a family that is following Jesus Christ. And you remember he prefaces that by saying to submit to one another out of reverence for God, which is a huge concept and it's very difficult because typically we're not really good at, at submitting to other people and we kind of want to demand and insist on our own way and our, our own rights. And yet Paul reminds us that we submit to one another, not because we think that everyone else is bright or right or, or even worthy, but we submit to one another because Jesus submitted to us. He came and left heaven, and he left everything aside so that we might have an opportunity to have forgiveness and freedom. When you think about families and you think about the role of families, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of complications. I think the Apostle Paul kind of starts off this conversation in general sense, and then he brings it home talking to us in terms of family because that's where things get difficult. It's difficult to submit to a husband or to a wife, and it's sometimes difficult to manage those extended family relationships as well. And that's where we are this morning. If you have your Bibles, grab those and turn with me. We're in Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Um, We're going to pick up in verse number one, click over there, whatever way you do. Because Paul's goal in this passage this morning is that he wants to see Christians really living as Christians at home. Parents, kids, this morning, there's no one that's going to know who the real you is better than the people who live in your house, right? You can't really hide the real you from your children as a parent. Parents or children, you can't hide the real you from your parents. Spouses have a very difficult time hiding who they are. Who it is that you are will come out in those intimate close relationships that you have with people. And this is not an easy concept, I should know. I'm not good at it, and maybe you aren't either. But with Christ's help, Paul seems convinced that we can become better 
and look more like Christ in those intimate relationships. So let, let's, let's look and see what he says. Ephesians 6, 1, he begins and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. There's not a lot of verses here, and we're going to spend our time this morning unpacking these four verses. But these four verses really have a lot, a lot of consequential uh, effect on our life. Paul gives us advice to two different groups of people. He starts off giving advice to children and then to parents. Christian children love God by honoring their parents, and Christian parents love God by disciplining their children. That's what Paul's kind of idea is here, and that's what we're going to go into. So let's begin this morning. Let's have a conversation a little bit about the value of obedience, because there's a lot of different personalities in the room today, and some of you guys are completely comfortable with obedience. You understand the the value of obedience. You know that it works out better for people who are obedient than there's the rest of us. The rest of us that are maybe a little rebellious in nature. We, we tend to ask the questions, why? We kind of push back when people demand that we do this or that or the other thing. What is the value of obedience? Why does Paul start this conversation and say, hey, children, obey your parents and the Lord because this is right. I want to start off and remind us that this is a passage written to children. And when Paul writes that, he means that those who are still living under the care and provision of a parent. So probably in our culture, we would think of kids that are 18 or under. For my, for my opinion, anyway, if you're still living in your mom and dad's house, you need to kind of live under mom and dad's rules. But those are the, those are the kids that are still home right here. And he says that we need to practice obedience. But this isn't really an instruction just to children, is it? How many of you this morning, quick, quick thought question, how many of you can honestly say this morning that you know of something that God is calling you to do, but you are choosing not to do it? There's no brave people in this room this morning. I knew it. Maybe no honest people in the room this morning. Hey, think about this. This happened to me this, this week. I was talking with somebody about something conversation goes as conversations go, like from one thing to another to another. Eventually, <laughs> in the middle of the conversation, I'm, I, the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder, not really, but figuratively, taps me on the shoulder because I've spent the last five minutes grumbling and complaining. What does the Bible say about that? Do all things without? You guys know it. But yet, do we grumble and complain? Absolutely. We all have an obedience problem. This isn't just a kid's problem. This is a human problem. And Paul begins and he says, kids, you need to learn to obey your parents. Why is this so important? Remember, this is written to Christian children and Christian families. And I realized this morning that some of us may not have come up in a Christian family. And we're going to address some of those issues as we move forward. Um, because, Because it doesn't, it becomes more complicated when that's the case. But Paul begins and he reminds us that obedience is just natural, just the way the world works. This isn't just something that we've just created in Christianity right here. He says, children, obey your, Lord, your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is the way it's done, right? From the very beginning, children have kind of obeyed their parents. It's a 
kind of a multicultural sort of thing. Children follow the leading direction of their parents. It doesn't just happen in, in, with people. It happens in the animal kingdom as well, right? You've had a mama with little puppies or a mama cat with kittens or my neighbor had a mama squirrel and every time a little baby squirrels would come out to see us, the mama gone and she'd suck them back into the nest, right? Um, those parents are demanding obedience and why? Well, because obedience is really, really important for children. This is a beautiful thing that God does with, with us when we're born. Up until about two years of age, most kids don't really have fear of almost anything. That fear doesn't really kick in. And that's really a good thing because there's a lot of really scary stuff that happens when you're a teeny tiny little kid. Like, can you imagine trying to learn to walk if you're afraid of learning to walk, right? And, and so God kind of just naturally says, you know what? I'm not going to make these kids fearful so they can learn and they can open up, but I'm going to give them parents that lead and guide and direct them. The problem with rebellion is, or disobedience, is that rebellion and disobedience is, well, it's kind of contagious, and it's a very hard habit to break. I've noticed that children who are rebellious in youth often spend their entire life pushing and kicking back at society and the, and the rules. They struggle in the workplace to maintain relationships with other people and jobs. They struggle in marriage. They, they, they struggle in general with relationships because they're kind of a habitual rebel. And so Paul begins and he says, hey, children, it is valuable to learn obedience. Now, it's important to understand that not only is obedience Uh, natural, but obedience is not just our plan, it's God's plan. He said in the middle of that text, in the Lord, right? This is not just a kind of a cultural situation to maintain control of children right here. This is God's plan and purpose. I want you to have an obedient relationship with others out of obedience to me. Reverence for parents in the Old Testament was seen as a way to reverence God. If you look at Leviticus, the 19th chapter, verse 3 verses or so there, kind of lays that out. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in many, many ways, right? Um, If you reject discipline and instruction of your parents, you won't learn to live and you won't have that good life that that Paul reminds us was a promise in the Old Testament. He said it's a first commandment with a promise that it will go well with you and you will live a long life in the land. And that was a direct uh, promise that was given to the children of Israel a generation before, or generations before. But honestly, obedience is really just the outward indication of an inward situation. Sometimes, sometimes parents are tempted to kind of confront disobedience and, and, and they try to force obedience out of a child. But the reality is, is that when a child is disobedient, when I am disobedient, there's an, another issue at play. And that's why Paul follows up, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, with the next concept, honor your father and mother. Honor is a powerful word and For some of us here today, we might look at the honoring of our parents, and it's an easy concept for us to grasp. We look back and we recognize there were so many good things about them, and there were things that we admire and things that we want to incorporate in our lives and in our parenting. For others of us here this morning, honor is a far more difficult thing to approach when it comes to our parents. 
because maybe our parents weren't as honorable. Maybe they weren't as worthy of our honor. I want you to recognize a few things about this concept of honor. Honor is kind of one of those things that is a horizontal commandment. It has to do with our relationships to other people. And several years ago, I began to kind of ask myself the question, why was Jesus able to just talk with everybody, and for the most part, except for those who are in the most elite levels of of society, everyone just loved Jesus. Even if he told them, you need to do some pretty radical things, they accepted that, and they, they made these big changes. Why was that? There was this thing that Jesus had in his person, and it was the fact that he honored people. He honored that they were made by his Creator, with the opportunity to choose for themselves the path that they would choose. Rich young man comes to him and says, hey, I want to inherit eternal life. What do I do? Jesus says, give everything you have away to the poor. Come follow me. And then he goes away sorrowful. Jesus allowed that young man. He honored that young man by knowing that it was his right to make his decision. But I want you to know that Jesus doesn't become an honoring person at age 30 when he steps out of his parents' home and into ministry. That honor began way earlier. We see the first hint of it at age 12 when Jesus is in the temple, has gone to the temple with his parents, and his parents and everyone have left. Jesus has remained in the temple. He is teaching the priests and the elders. Everyone is amazed at the amount of knowledge this young man has, right? Joseph and Mary make it partway home before they realize that they have forgotten the Son of God. And so they return back to Jerusalem. They search all over Jerusalem. In the normal places, you would find a regular kid. They don't find him. They finally go to the temple, and here he is, having a seminary class with the most learned people of his day. And Mary says, why did you do this to us, right? (laughs) And and Jesus says, well, didn't you guys know I was going to be about my father's business? Not snarky, serious. If I said that, that would be snarky, but Jesus was serious. He knew what he was here for. He knew what he was called to do. He said, didn't you know I was going to be doing here, mom? Like, why are you looking all over for me? I'm going to be in my father's house. And then they said to him, Come home with us. And you know what Jesus did? He went home with them. He honored his earthly mother and father. Now, you think about that for a moment, and that starts to kind of pull a little bit at some strings. Why would Jesus step aside from this awesome opportunity just because his parents said, it's time for us to go back to boring home Jesus realized and left us a powerful example that obedience matters. Jesus honored his father and mother because that's the way God intends for it to be. It doesn't mean that Mary and Joseph were right in asking Jesus to leave in that moment. It doesn't mean that their outrage was founded on anything practical because maybe we could point out that they should have let him stay and it could have maybe led to a great revival. It might be said that that Mary's comment was rather disrespectful, but Jesus, Jesus simply honored his parents and was obedient. And I realize some parents aren't very honorable. If you're a parent here this morning, I think that you're probably like me and you recognize that you've made mistakes. I've made plenty. There's a lot of things that I would like to take back and do differently, but I simply cannot. 
once it's done, it's done. And you probably have some stories and some thoughts, some situations, some hurts that lay at the feet of your parents. So how do we honor our parents, even if they're not as honorable as we would like for them to be? I think there's three things the Bible tells us that we should do. And these are not just things we do for our parents, but these are really ways that we treat everyone. They're probably more difficult, though, when it comes to people who are family, who we feel like should owe us something. The first one is simply that we show them love. Sometimes it's hard to show people that we are very close to the kind of love that they deserve especially when they have hurt us or failed us or abandoned us. But the Bible doesn't give us an option on loving people, does it? It doesn't say, well, you can love these people, but you don't have to love these people. There's this concept of of that all fall under the umbrella of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? And in that world, there are people who are wonderful people, and there are people who are absolutely scoundrels. There are people who embrace Jesus and commit their entire life to his service, and there are other people that use his name and curse in vain. And yet Jesus loves them all. Love does not mean that someone who did something wrong to us is no longer guilty of the wrong. Love simply means that we are going to care about them We are going to let them know that they matter to God and that they matter to us. And when something good happens to children, parents like to know. And sometimes it's just that matter of opening the door ever so slightly is to let that person know of the good things that are happening in your life. Those are courtesies that we show to people whom we care about. Let them enjoy these moments, even if their past story worked against every one of those. Share your life with them. Let them see the impact that they had on you. For some of us, it's easy to love our parents because they're worthy of love. And for those of us who are so blessed to have that kind of parent, sometimes we can take their their presence with us for granted. My mom and dad died when I was fairly young, and um, I miss them. When I was writing this sermon this weekend, it was a little difficult for me. Because you're thinking back to those situations and those things and those formative moments in life, both good and bad. Honor your parents by showing them love. Don't take them for granted. And even if they don't deserve it, love them anyway. Number two, forgive them. This isn't easy. But Jesus doesn't call us to do easy things. He didn't leave behind the spirit of the living God because the tasks that are at our feet are simple that we can do on our own. Sometimes it requires us to completely surrender our life to him. But I should mention this morning that forgiveness to a Christian is not an option, but it's a mandate. Jesus told an elaborate parable of two men, one with a massive debt who was forgiven by the Lord who then goes and holds a very small debt of another person against him. And as in the end of that that parable, the Lord of that parable took the first former servant who owned a massive debt in and said, I'm going to throw you in jail until you should pay every last red cent you owe me. And the man could not do that. God was trying to point out, to illustrate a powerful point to us, forgiveness is not optional. 
And it's not that God's being mean and he's trying to say you have to forget it and walk on and normalize a relationship. That's not necessarily forgiveness. This isn't a sermon about forgiveness this morning. But what it means is, is that we, that we lay it down at the foot of the cross. And God's not telling us to forgive because it's hard on us. He's telling us to forgive because we're not created to not forgive. We're not created to carry about bitterness and distrust and anger and bitterness and rage. Our emotions are not designed to hold on to those things long-term. God knows this. And so he says, I demand that you lay those things down. Jesus will give us the strength to do that. And although it's very difficult, and I recognize and can at least uh, sympathize this morning that some of us are struggling with things that our parents have done that are extremely hurtful and have changed the entire trajectory of our life for yourself and for them. We are called to forgive. The third is this, to find your value in Christ. I know the first two are kind of self-explanatory, to love your parents even if they don't deserve it and make sure you don't take them for granted if they're still with you. I know that it's a thing that we all recognize that all of us, every one of us in this room that are grown, have had to forgive our parents for some things that they did, not not maybe huge things, but mistakes that were made, attitude problems that they maybe passed on to us or, or were exemplified in front of us. We've all had to forgive. What do I mean when I say that we need to find our value in Christ? Over the years, talking to a lot of grown-ups, I realized that a lot of us are still looking for some kind of affirmation from our parents. Something that we wanted them to say, and they never said. Maybe because they just didn't think like that, we didn't make it understood that we needed that, maybe they weren't very emotionally sensitive or mature in themselves to recognize that their children needed to hear that they were loved or to feel expressions of love. Maybe our love languages were different. And some of us, our parents are gone, and yet we're still still longing to find that sense of approval. Some of us were, our parents had a favorite and we weren't it, right? I wasn't my parents' favorite. No, I'm just picking. <laughs> it was only one of me. <laughs> I was their least favorite and their favorite, all in one. Um, but, uh, but sometimes our parents had a favorite and we weren't the favorite. And, and we kind of carry that chip on our shoulder our entire lives. You know, one of the most freeing things that we can do is to recognize that our value is not our value in the eyes of our parents. I know very well a person who has spent their entire life trying to live up to a standard that a parent imposed on them. And the sad part about that is, is that that parent's standard was not really reasonable and that person wasn't gifted in that particular area. It's kind of been a train wreck of existence and I wish so much they could just realize Christ created me to be this person, and I'm going to be that, and that's okay. Find our value in Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are not just a child of the parents that gave birth to you in this world, but you have been adopted into and are a child of your heavenly Father. He is your ultimate creator. He is your redeemer in that he sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive you of your sins. He has prepared not just an opportunity for you here, an inheritance in this world, but he is preparing for you an eternal inheritance. And even if you don't get from this world and the parents of this world something that you feel like you need, your heavenly father has more than compensated for it 
in what he is preparing in the next. Let's focus on those things instead. So parents or children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is a first commandment with a promise that it might go well with you and you might live long in the land. And then Paul begins to give advice to parents. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Years ago, I had somebody come into my office and they said, how do I make my kid be a Christian? And it was, a, it was a sincere question from a very sincere heart. A parent just wanted their child to follow Jesus. And how do I make them do it? And I had to tell them, you can't. Because we can't make children Christians. But we can make it easy to love Jesus in our homes. We can endeavor to make our home ring with gospel joy. We can work hard to make sure that our family isn't just a family of Christians, but is a Christian family. And what I mean by that is is that Christianity isn't just something that we do out here, but it is who we are in here, right? You guys get what I'm saying? That it's not just a religious experience that we attend on occasion with our family, but it's a lifestyle that we live together, that we are sold out for Christ and for his cause. Guys, I don't think we realize just how impactful that is. We can't make a child follow God, but we can surely help them see what it looks like to be a child of God. And I'm convinced that if they see a really good picture of that, there's going to be once in a while, there's going to be a real rebel. It's got to go out and try his own thing. But most kids are going to see that and say, that's what I was created for, because that is exactly what we were created for. That is exactly who we were created to be. Guys, sometimes we just settle for ho-hum and an empty existence. We go to work, we come home, we watch TV, we go to bed, we get up and go to work. Guys, there's way more than that. C.S. Lewis, I, one of my favorite authors, some of you guys probably have read him. He has this line in one of his books, and I like it a lot. He says that we are far too easily pleased, and he's not talking about commitment here. He's talking about complacency. He said, we settle for mud pies, when a holiday at the sea is there for the taking. God has offered us so much more in family life than just enduring it. Or just a moment of pleasure here and a moment of pleasure there. He's talking about creating an environment that, that just naturally nurtures Christian growth. And, and I, if you're a young couple here today and you don't, you're not even married yet or you're soon to be married or maybe you're married and you haven't had kids yet, make that your goal, that your house, your home is going to be a place that just nurtures spiritual growth, not just in your kids, but in anyone whom you invite into your home. Because that's really what God wants to see. And so Paul starts off with the negative commandment right here. He's going to get that out of the way so he can build and we can build this morning to a positive conclusion. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Let me say quickly that this isn't just written, I don't believe, to dads. But dads in that particular day and age were the sole, had the sole responsibility of the children. They were Children were in complete control as the dads. If you've ever studied much in the Roman Empire, you know that a dad could have his son killed. He could sell his child into slavery. No law stood in his way. He could do whatever he wanted to to his kid, if you can imagine that. 
And so Paul is writing specifically to fathers because they occupied in that culture that role. But really, this is a commandment to parents. And he says, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, there's always going to be times that kids get angry, right? That's part of parenting is that we, that we, we tell our kids no, and that frustrates them. And then they, we walk through them and work through them and say, okay, this is how we, we work through this. When we're disappointed, we don't get our way. We don't throw a fit and pound our fists on the ground or throw things off the store shelves. We find other ways to find and channel meaning and purpose out of that situation. No one always gets their way, right? Sometimes your kids are going to be angry. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying that it's wrong to make your kid disappointed or frustrated at you because who doesn't get angry on occasion? Who doesn't get a little frustrated when things don't go our way? That's natural human tendency. We, we help our kids work through that. But what Paul is talking about here is not intermediate anger, not just anger that comes and goes because mom and dad said I couldn't go hang out with my friends this weekend, but rather a deep abiding anger that's a result of the systems of our upbringing. When I talk about a deep abiding anger, I'm talking about that kind of anger that may not even be obvious on the surface, but it's right underneath the surface. It's just seething frustration. It's this agitation. It's this snappiness. It's right underneath the surface. And we might ask, well, how do we avoid that? What causes that? And I think there's two things that can really cause kids to become very angry with their parents in a very systematic way. And they're actually on two extremes of the parenting spectrum. On one extreme of the parenting spectrum, it's harshness. And I think it's very important for us as parents to avoid harshness when it comes to our kids. What I mean by harshness is that heavy-handed, right down, I don't know any way, other way to say it, but mean kind of a parenting style. I grew up with some kids whose parents were mean to them. I mean, discipline that was way beyond discipline. Corporal punishment that was not a reminder of what they should do, but it was a relieving of frustrations and anger of the parent on the kid's backside, if you understand what I'm saying. These kids were almost, if not abused, under the guise of discipline. That provokes anger. When a parent creates a scenario where a child cannot win, one of two things happens. You either create a rebel or you break their spirit. And a domineering, commanding parent might think that breaking the spirit of a child means that they have won, but they realize that what they don't realize is that they have actually lost. That kind of aggressive parent doesn't care about disciplining or training a child, which we're going to talk about in a moment. They just want that child to fall in line. Don't embarrass me. That's not about the kid becoming who God has called them to be. That's not them learning how to deal with life and growing to become better. That is about you as a parent. That's about your convenience and your image. And yet it's easy for us as parents sometimes to fall into that trap King Saul was, was a dad like that. In 1 Samuel 20, um, we see a, a dinner where Saul has invited David and Jonathan 
David's best friend, who happened to be his son, to a meal. And Saul has an intention to kill David. Now, Saul is one of those hard people. Saul is a macho, macho man. If God doesn't show up, Saul will take things into his own hands. He's got the world by the tail, except that all that bitterness and arrogance and and pompousness, if that's a word, all that pride has left him a hollowed man who is nervous, who doesn't trust anyone, and who hates anyone who looks better than he does. He's a miserable man that makes everyone around him miserable. And parents, we can become like that if we're not careful, if we don't manage our own jealousy, our own anger, and our own relationship with God. Before that meal's over, Saul will demand of Jonathan why David's not at the dinner. Well, Jonathan had worked it out where David could be excused from dinner because he knew his dad was likely to kill him. And so he said, what has David done to you? And Saul picks up his spear and tries to kill his own son. Why? Well, he didn't fall in line with Saul's plan. But on the other side of that spectrum... There's a parent that's too soft. And that begins to cause a lot of calamity and anger in the heart of a child as well. Because whether or not children know it, they want and need to be guided. Now, they don't need that parent to have their hands around their throat choking them out. But they want to know that there's a child or a parent behind them that taps them on the shoulder occasionally and holds them back from things that are leading them into the path of danger. I've talked to a lot of kids over the years whose parents were just wanted to be their best friend, wanted just to be permissive and let them explore the world and do their thing. And while it worked for some kids who just naturally kind of were obedient and maybe a little wiser than others, for some kids it didn't work out well at all. And their response categorically to me is, why didn't my parents tell me or why didn't they stop me? You want a Bible example of such a parent? Jacob is a great example of that. He a, plays a prominent role in the, in the nation of Israel, right? His sons are the 12 tribes of Israel right there, and grandsons. Um, but, but when you start to look at the stories of these guys, you just realize that these guys are out of control. Jacob is watching as his sons are doing all kinds of wicked things, not to exclude the fact that they sold his favorite son into slavery in the land of Egypt. Now, was God working in that situation? You bet. Is God always working in situations? You bet. But Jacob should have taken control of his family, and he didn't. That was a patriarchal system. Grown men were required in that time to answer to their father, and yet Jacob never forced his children to answer for anything that they did. Because of that, the boys made big messes of their lives and the lives of other people as well. A Christian parent needs to look at their children in a very unique way, and we'll close with this this morning. They need to see their children as a stewardship opportunity. One of the moments that I'll never never forget until the day I die is the moment that I was sitting up at about 2 o'clock in the morning holding Kelsey when she was brand new. Michelle was exhausted from delivery. She was passed out in the bed. Kelsey woke up at some point in the middle of the night. She was uh, probably confused about what was going on. She had just come into the world earlier that day. She had a stomach ache. She wakes up just screaming, 
And eventually I go and I scoop her up, and I was a little nervous with kids yet because this was my first one, right? So I'm sitting in the chair, and she eventually begins to calm down, and she does that thing that infants do. I think you've probably all seen this before, but that stare that infants give that just like goes into your soul, right? And so here I am, middle of the night in a dimly lit hospital room, alone with my firstborn daughter laying in my arms, and I was looking into her eyes. She's looking into mine, and I was overwhelmed with the realization that I was holding in my arms an eternal being, that she was going to someday choose to follow the Lord and go to heaven, or she would choose someday to follow her own desires and go to hell. That it wasn't just that I had been given a little pet, but I had been given an enormous responsibility, an eternal being that would not just affect her future, but might affect many other people's futures as well. I remember praying that night, the simple prayer, God help me to do this because I was overwhelmed. I was crying, not tears of joy, but tears of genuine concern. For his sake, we are called to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition or discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that phrase is so important. There's a lot of you guys in this room today. There's a lot of us that are good people, and we're going to raise our kids well. We're going to raise them up with discipline, and we're going to raise them up with instruction because we know they need it. But guys, I don't want you to miss what Paul says here. He says, bring them up in the nurture and admonition, the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. It doesn't matter how successful your kids are in this world. It doesn't matter how self-controlled they are about how much they know about the world and how many wise decisions they make here. If they don't make spiritually wise decisions, it really doesn't matter. This means parents have to be aware of the rhythms of our lives because life is happening around us all the time. If you're a mom and dad right now and you have little ones at the house, remember those days. It just seems like everyone needs something. Everything's sticky. Everyone stinks. And everyone needs something from you, right? And it's just like a whirlwind of life going around. And maybe dads, maybe this is that moment that we are called to kind of elevate our vision for a moment and to begin to look around. Maybe you have teenagers at home and there's constant practices and constant dirty laundry and constant needs of money going here and there for different activities they're in. And it can be really easy for us just to find ourselves coming and going in a home. Maybe you're a, maybe you're a mom and dad whose children have grown and now have children of their own and, and you find yourself as kind of a mentor standing in the background. No matter who you are today, we need to be aware of those rhythms of life. How is our week structured? How much of a priority is Jesus in our family life? Is church a checklist on Sunday morning or is it an anticipation on Saturday evening? Is youth group dependent on your kids' extracurriculars or are you as a parent willing to go and have conversations with the other people that are involved in your kids' life to let them know that spiritual matters are the number one important thing in the life of your child. See, the the thing that we sometimes fail to recognize is that while life is happening, those rhythms of life are proving to our children the reality of the existence of God. 
And while some of us are adamant in telling our kids God exists, they don't see any actual evidence that God should be a priority in how we live and what we do and what we say at home. Do we pray or read the Bible in front of our kids or with our kids? Do we talk about Jesus in a regular sort of way? I'm not talking like a Sunday school sort of way. There's nothing wrong with that either. But, but having real conversations like Jesus is real, a real person, which he is, or that the Holy Spirit is really there because it is, right? Saying, hey, how would Jesus handle this situation? Have you prayed about this? Are you depending on the leading of the Spirit, especially as your kids get older? Having those kinds of conversations are super important. You want them to recognize this isn't just a, a fairy tale. This is how I live my life. You invite others into your home for the sake of the gospel. You invite people over and just let the kids know, hey, this is because we're trying to do something. We're trying to reach lots of people for Jesus. This might be a little rough tonight, kids. It's okay. They might break some of your toys. It's fine because we're trying to reach people for Jesus and everything belongs to him anyway. Do you ever go and serve other people together as a family? Because Jesus called us to serve. Do you ever engage with your older kids about who they think Jesus is and what they think Jesus would have them do? Are you able to listen as your kids feed back to you about how they think that you could be more like Christ? There's a couple things that my kids have mentioned to me over the years that they didn't think looked like Jesus. That's hard as a preacher for your kids to tell you that you need improvement. But of course I need improvement, right? I'm a miserable failure in a lot of things, and so are all of us this morning, right? And those rhythms of life reveal to my kids that maybe there's something a little out of sequence here with that. It's okay. Because how you respond to that also shows them your relationship and the importance of that relationship with the Heavenly Father. Guys, it's so easy just to let life come at us. But Christian parents love God by helping their children follow Jesus. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it might go well with you and you will live long on the land. Fathers, do not bring your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition, the discipline and the instruction of our Lord. That is Paul's shape for the Christian family. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ in obedience and in love, building each other up together so that our home becomes a place where spiritual development blooms. If you have a need this morning, you know you can always come. Maybe this is a Sunday where you say, you know what, I want to get in the family of God. I need to know that the Lord is is on my side and that invitation is always open. The baptistry is always ready. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about a challenge in parenting that's going on in your home right now. Please don't leave here today without having at least an initial conversation with somebody and setting that up. Let's stand together, church. Let's sing.